Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Today is the final Sunday before Lent on the church calendar, the season that prepares us for Easter. And as such, uh, it's also Transfiguration Sunday. That's always when it is. It's the last Sunday before Lent, and there's a good reason for that. We've been looking in this season between Epiphany and Lent at the beginning of the good news. That's been the theme. That's been what we've been doing Um, We're looking at the early ministry of Jesus in Galilee. And the transfiguration is the final event in the ministry of Jesus in Galilee before he begins his journey to Jerusalem. So that the transfiguration in several ways is a transition event. We have the beginning of the good news in Galilee. And the ministry of Jesus is going up, up, up. The crowds get bigger. He's more and more popular. There is resistance among some, but the masses are with him. And everything is, it just seems like it's just going towards some sort of pinnacle of what we would think of as success. Certainly what the disciples think. And this reaches a high mark with the transfiguration upon Mount Tabor in Galilee, and then everything changes. And from that point, it's now steadily downward as Jesus moves toward Jerusalem, crucifixion, and death. And so it's a a transition. I always think that if you were setting the gospel uh, to a music score, that following the transfiguration, it changes to a minor key because we begin the journey toward the cross, and that's what, that's what Lent is about, and that's what Lent is for. Um, and in some ways, we can think of the transfiguration as the culmination of the good news. We've been talking about the beginning of the good news. In some ways, it's the culmination of the good news because it's a glimpse of the end. It's a glimpse of the end. That's going to be the sermon title, by which I mean it's a glimpse of the eschaton. That's a theological word that means uh, the end of God's divine plan. It's a glimpse of kingdom come. Let's see how it works. So they're still in Galilee. And one day, Jesus feels like going on a hike. And he takes Peter, James, and John. Those are the disciples that comprise his inner circle. And he takes them on a strenuous hike up a high mountain called Mount Tabor. I got a picture of Mount Tabor. I took this picture in, uh, there it is. I'm still not used to what screen they're on. Uh, I took that picture in May. Perry and I uh, drove from Nazareth over to Tabor. We marched, did I say May? It's March. Yeah, it was March, May. We were just sitting in our house looking at each other. And uh, <laughs> March, 
And I pulled over to the side of the road. Remember, that was kind of a crazy drive there. And I pulled over to the side of the road and took this picture. of That's, that's Mount Tabor, and that's the village of Tabor down below with the, with the mountain looming over it. Uh, and I'll show you. This is what it looks like when you get to the top. This is the view you have. Uh, just over the lush green uh, fields of Galilee. Well, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. They hike up to the top of this mountain. And Jesus begins to pray. And as he prays, he's transfigured. There's something that changes about Jesus. Well, it's quite dramatic, in fact. His clothing, it, it's coming from his being, but it, it, this, this thing that's happening is shining through Jesus' clothing so that his apparel is white and dazzling. And his face begins to shine so much so that it's like the sun and they can't even look directly at it. As if that wasn't strange enough, these two titans from the Old Testament appear with Jesus, Moses and Elijah. They are representative figures, of course. Moses is the lawgiver. He represents the law. Elijah is the quintessential prophet. He represents the prophets, the law and the prophets representing the whole of what we call the Old Testament. And these two great representative figures of the law and the prophets, they appear and they are having a conversation with Jesus. Not just there with him. They are having a conversation and they are discussing his departure that he will accomplish in Jerusalem. Luke tells us this. They're discussing, actually the word is his exodus. And if you're going to talk about an exodus, Moses would be a good conversation partner. And they're talking about what's going to happen in Jerusalem. Of course, this is also, uh, there's so much here. Because um, Moses and Elijah, they didn't live, you know, concurrently or anything. They're hundreds of years apart. Maybe, I've got to do figure it out here. It, they're centuries apart. And, um, but they both have encounters with God upon Mount Sinai. Uh, upon Mount Sinai, Moses climbed that mountain and he encountered God to such a degree that his face was shining. And now upon Mount Sinai, Moses beholds what we call the uncreated light in the face of Christ. He's seen this light before because that's what he saw in the burning bush. It's the light that he saw on Mount Sinai that caused his own face to shine. And now he sees it in the face of Christ. Elijah was also on Mount Sinai when he fled from Jezebel. And he was in that cave. And he heard the still, small voice of God. Well, now upon another holy mountain, Moses and Elijah both again encounter the divine. They see God and they hear God. Peter, of course, is overwhelmed by all of this. And he wants to join the conversation as is his want. And he's got an idea. Oh, it's so good to be here. Nothing could be better than this. Let's build three tabernacles. Three shrines, a Moses shrine, an Elijah shrine, a Jesus shrine. This is his idea. Problem is he's treating Jesus as some sort of more or less equal with Moses and Elijah. And they're only there to point to Jesus and say, 
this is what we anticipated. This is what we've been waiting for. This is the one. And the voice comes out of the heavens, the voice of the Father, and says to the disciples, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Because Jesus is what God has to say. They're overwhelmed. They fall into a dead faint. And Jesus comes and touches them, and He says, Fear not. And when they recovered their senses and looked around, no more Moses, no more Elijah, but Jesus only. Now that's the story of the transfiguration. The transfiguration has been relatively unimportant in Western theology, Catholic Protestant. It's very important in Eastern Orthodoxy, but it's not much I mean, comparatively, compared to Eastern Orthodoxy, it's not developed very much. And in, I mean, it's almost entirely absent from modern Western theology. I mean, unless you, unless you come to Word of Life Church, you probably haven't heard many sermons on the Transfiguration. If you're part of Word of Life Church, you've heard a bunch of them. But I'm the anomaly. Uh, it tends to be something that's just kind of an odd event that in Western theology, especially in modern times, is generally overlooked. Uh, I think this is a big mistake. It's why we need to pay attention to the church calendar. Because if we do pay attention to the church calendar and preach accordingly, we have to preach on the transfiguration at least once a year, and that is this, that Sunday. The transfiguration is, in fact, not just some obscure, strange event. It is one of the most theologically significant events in the life of Jesus. In other words we can derive an enormous amount of theological insight from what we call the transfiguration. Um, it is, for one thing, it's, a, it's the revelation of the full deity of Jesus Christ. As we behold uh, the fullness of divine glory in Jesus. Now, the transfiguration is not, don't think, it's not something that happened to Jesus. Don't think of it that way, that, 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 Jesus, that something came upon, that something happened to Jesus. That's not really the way to think about it. Rather, the transfiguration is an unveiling of who Jesus is and always has been. If there's, if there's anyone changed on Mount Tabor, it's not really Jesus, it's the eyes of Peter, James, and John. For them, the veil is taken away and... They behold who this one really is. Fully human, yes, but also fully God. This is the moment where we see Jesus is God. Now, the whole point of that, though, is that we might, not, that we might know what God is like. The point in confessing the deity of Christ, when we say that Jesus is God... The point is not to say, ah, we know what God is like and Jesus is that. No, the point is, we don't know what God is like until we realize that Jesus is God. And that's when we make the glorious discover, discovery that God is like Jesus. Okay, we see that at the transfiguration. We see that, and I've preached on this a lot, that Jesus is what God has to say. That's why Moses and Elijah received the law and the prophets Receive. We don't just have a flat Bible where everything's the same. The law and the prophets say our chief purpose is to point everyone to the one who is the Son of God. 
the one who is the true Word of God, the one who is the Logos incarnate. And once that witness is born, and then the disciples are overcome, when they regain their senses, there's Jesus saying, don't be afraid, and they see only Jesus. But I don't want to talk about that. I've talked about that a lot. What I want to say this morning is that the transfiguration is a glimpse of the end. It's a glimpse of the eschaton. It's a glimpse of kingdom come. It's a glimpse of where we are headed. The transfiguration is not just a revelation of who Jesus is and thus who God is. It's also a revelation of the destiny for all creation. But to understand this, we have to look at the verse that is strangely left, always left out of the transfiguration readings, and it shouldn't be. I mean, today, from the Revised Common Lectionary, our gospel reading on Transfiguration Sunday is Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. What happened to verse 1? Verse 1 always gets lopped off. But it's by reading verse 1 that we actually understand what's going on here. So let's start with verse 1. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God present with power. All right, here's the context. They've gone up to Caesarea Philippi. Very, very, very northern part, the northern extreme of Galilee. And now they're coming back to Capernaum. And they're going to pass by Tabor. And that's when, well, when up in Caesarea Philippi is where Peter has confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's also where Jesus first reveals that he's going to go to Jerusalem and be rejected and beaten and crucified and raised on the third day. And that's when Peter takes him aside and says, no, 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 that's not going to happen to you. And Jesus has to, he's just said, you're the rock. And now he says, you're the devil too. Get behind me, Satan. And then Jesus begins to talk about the kingdom of God, how we have to lose ourselves to find our true life. And then Jesus says, there are, he's talking to the 12 disciples. There are some standing here. How's it go? I'm going to read it again. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God present with power. Verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. In all three gospel accounts, of the transfiguration, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's not in John. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the event of the transfiguration is immediately preceded by Jesus telling his disciples that some of them will not see death until they have seen the kingdom of God present with power. And then six days later, three disciples, Peter, James, and John, See Jesus transfigured. So what is the transfiguration? It is a glimpse of the end. It is a glimpse of the eschaton. It is a glimpse of the kingdom come. It is a glimpse of the kingdom of God present with power. 
What happened to Christ upon Mount Tabor is where we're all headed. That's where we're going. The transfiguration is a prime source for informing our eschatology. That is our theology of how's this thing going to wind up. That's what eschatology means. The theology of where are we going? How's this going to end up? In Christianity, we proclaim that history and creation itself has a goal, a purpose, a telos, an end. Unlike say, Hinduism, a very rich, very ancient religious tradition that sees existence as a circle. And we go around and we start. So there's no really end. There's no end to it. It just, it just, that which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the side. Christianity says, no, that's, that's not it. Or Christianity is not like uh, postmodern nihilism. That's, there isn't any purpose. There's no purpose. It's just, it's, we're just here, and if there is any purpose, we make it up. Christianity says, no, it's not an endless cycle. It's not a meaningless existence. There is a goal. There is an end to history because God has a plan. And by end, I don't mean that we arrive at a static state of being where nothing happens. Rather, I mean that the world, as we presently know it, just, just think about the world, you know. 2021, February, planet Earth. The world as we know it is interim. It's provisional. It's temporary. Furthermore, it's broken. It's damaged. It's fallen. It's a world gone wrong. But this present state, as I just said, is provisional. Interim. Temporary. It's not the end. We don't have to stay. We won't stay stuck like it is now. In the end, the end we look for is what the Apostle Peter calls Apocatastasis, the restoration of all things. Things are broken. Things are messed up. Things are subject to decay. Everything falls apart. But the apostle Peter, through the Holy Spirit in Acts 3.21, says, no, no, we're looking for the rest. We're looking for it all to be put back together, to be healed, to be restored. Humanity, history, And creation will be restored to a state beyond sin, corruption, and death. There is locked up within fallen creation, including you and me, a glory waiting to be released and unveiled. There's something locked up within us that has not yet been released and let loose. The Apostle Paul talks about it in Romans 8 like this. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. Hello, children of God. 
You are children of God, but you're not, you're not yet really revealed. You mostly look like just some people from St. Joe Mo sitting in a church on a Sunday afternoon that it's just frigid cold outside. That's what you look like. Because you haven't been fully revealed yet. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For creation was subjected, subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The eschaton, that is, that is the, the culmination of God's divine plan, the eschaton is not about transfer to a different place. It's about stepping into a different time right where we are. So the idea, the idea, the plan is not, okay, this place is a dump and we're moving. So long, world. We whisk away somewhere else. Nope, nope, that's not the plan. That is not the eschaton. That's not the plan. The plan is that right here is going to arrive at a new time where everything is redeemed from its bondage to decay. And things become right. And it happens with the revealing of the children of God, the glory of the children of God. So the, the, the eschatological hope, I know I'm using big words today, that we have, the eschatological hope that we have is not transferred to a different place, but entrance into a new time. This is what we catch a glimpse, glimpse of on the Mount of Transfiguration. Just as Jesus was transfigured, so that one moment he, you looked at him and he, he looks like a Galilean Jew of the first century. And then a moment later, you can't even look. His face is shining like the sun and it's strength and you're overwhelmed. Okay, just as Jesus was transfigured like that, so all that is redeemed within humanity and nature will shine with a similar glory. We all shine on like the moon and the stars and the sun. And Daniel said that. The righteous shall shine like you. You are going to shine, my brother, my sister. You're going to shine. This is what is called in theology. This is a very theological sermon today, for which I make no apology. This is what is called in Christian theology theosis. That's what they call it in the East. Or deification, that's what they call it in the West. You can use either term. It means participation in the divine nature. That, that we are going to ultimately participate in the divine nature. Here's how the Apostle Peter says that. 2 Peter 1.4, that we may escape the corruption that is in the world. We're not escaping the world, we're escaping the corruption that is inherent in a fallen world that we may escape the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire and become participants of the divine nature. God in Christ joins humanity. Say Merry Christmas. Okay, that's what we celebrate Christmas time. God in Christ joins humanity. But why? why? So that humanity can join God in Christ. And that's what's going to heal. That's how, that's how we're healed. 
That God in Christ comes into the brokenness of humanity and he takes it on himself. Does it destroy Jesus? Well, he dies. But he doesn't stay dead. He's raised and ascended at the right hand. He takes, he takes humanity into himself to heal it. And so that our destiny is to participate in the divine nature and be liberated from the corrupt nature that's in the world through sinful desire. Jesus Christ, the one who is fully God and fully human, is the restorer of all things. To be in Christ is to become a participant in the divine nature and new creation. That's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, if anyone is in Christ, whoa, look out, behold, a new creation. Our transformation into the fullness of glory is connected with, here's another theological term, with the beatific vision, which means just to see Jesus, to see God, to see God in Christ. That is that when we see God revealed in the face of Christ, and we've heard about Jesus, we know about Jesus, we've had encounters with Jesus, but we haven't seen him in the fullness of his glory. But when we do, we're going to be changed. All right, we've heard from apostles Peter and Paul we got to bring in John, don't we? Here comes, here comes the Apostle John. Listen to what he says. Beloved, we are God's children now. Say amen. Isn't that good? We, beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be, right now we're children of God. We're, chi- we're not going to become, we're children of God. But what we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this. When he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. That's the, that's the beatific vision. We see God in Christ, and we don't just see it in our maze. We see it, and we are, what word would you use? Transfigured. We become like that. This is our blessed hope. This is what we catch a glimpse of in the transfiguration. Our future is to be transfigured. We've not seen our best selves yet, but we will. And the beautiful thing is, we'll be recognizable, but glorified. You know, that wasn't such a big deal when I was 20. (laughs) But I'm 61 now, and I'm becoming less recognizable to myself. So what happened to that BZ I knew? What happened to that BZ in the mirror 20, 40 years ago? Well, you know, you can do what you be, You can try to eat well and work out and make God bless you in all of it. But you're still not going to win that battle. Eventually, corruption will have its way and, you know, we'll put you in a casket. If you treat me right, I'll try to say good things about you. And we'll put you in the ground. But is that the end? No, we we are to be transfigured so that we recognize one another. There's Merle. There's Nancy. But in glory, glorified, glorified. We've not seen our best selves yet. You've not seen anyone's best self yet. But you're going to. But you're going to. And this is true. Watch this. Watch this. Not only of us, but of creation itself. Not just us. Creation itself. Nature. Say it that way. Nature itself. Because we're part of creation. Think about the implications of that. 
We talk about the grandeur of nature, and I love the nature, and I'm looking forward to our Colorado mountain retreat. Talk about the things of God and connect it with the grandeur of the mountains and all of that. You think about the grandeur of nature. The mountains, the oceans, the beaches, the forests, the trees, the deserts, all of that. And then you realize that's a fallen nature. If the grandeur of nature we see now is a fallen nature, imagine what the glorious, nat- the glorious nature is going to be like. Well, if we weren't glorified, it would probably just kill us. This is Christian eschatology. This is what Christians believe about the end. So get rid of that hyper-violent, doom-oriented, gotta have a mega-war in the Middle East before all this wraps up. Get rid of it. It's, It's false, it's aberrant, it's abhorrent, and it's decidedly a non-Christian eschatology. I'm talking about things like Left Behind, Late Great Planet Earth, Blood Moons, Lord help us, and all the rest. None of it's true. None of it's true. Some of them may have stumbled into an innocently, I'm sure probably they all did. But none of it's true. It's terrible theology. If you want If you want some recommendations, you can talk to me and I'll give you the good recommendations on how you study the book of Revelation. You can start with Sinners in the Hands of the Loving God. It's got three chapters on it. (laughs) That doom-oriented, hyper-violent, we got to have a mega war in the Middle East before this thing wraps up, is aberrant, it's abhorrent, and it's wrong. It's terrible theology, and it's just time for it to be, watch out now, left behind. We await the parousia. That's another Greek theology technological term. It just means the appearing of our Lord. We await the parousia, the appearing of our Lord and the transfiguration of all things. Now we can understand that in one of two ways. Either we are simply waiting for the time of the parousia to arrive. We're just we're here and it's out there and someday we don't know when it'll arrive. We can think about it that way. Or there's another way of thinking about it. There's another theological approach, and that is that both realities, old and new creation, subject to corruption and transfigured, exist simultaneously, but at different times. Theologian Douglas Campbell talks about this, and it's pretty clear that this is what C.S. Lewis believed. That is that at death... We enter new creation. At death, we enter what I'm talking about. Not, now listen to me, not as disembodied beings, not not in a disembodied creation, but in the embodied creation of, of of the new age that already exists and has existed since the resurrection of Jesus. And at death, what we do is we we don't see death, we encounter Christ. And we are brought into this new resurrection reality right then. And so that we have two things existing simultaneously. This is when theology meets Einstein. I can tell you this much. If you, if you floated this idea past Einstein, he would say, I don't know if it's true, but I know it's not impossible. It has to do with 
So that instead of we think, okay, at death we, we, we die, and yes, we're absent from the body, but present with the Lord, and we're just waiting, 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 thousands and thousands of years, or it's been 2,000 anyway. Rather, there is the resurrection reality already present, but another time. And so it's not a different place. So that at death, as you enter into Christ, you arrive. You're still here, but in its transfigured glory. I'm beginning to explore that deeper, that thinking. I, I'm fascinated by it. I like it. I think there's a lot to commend it. But in the end, you know, it'll be what it'll be. What's actually more important is to actively promote my own transfiguration to the extent that I can here and now. Luke tells us that Jesus was transfigured while he was watching television up there. on No, while he was praying. While he's praying, he's transfigured. And that's, that's why we know that the primary purpose of prayer is not to get God to do what we think God ought to do, but to be transfigured, properly formed. That's what prayer is mostly about. Amen and amen. So we've talked about great mysteries today. Perusia. How does that work? Do we just enter into it in death? And, and it's still us, and it's physical. It's even, it's, you know, C.S. Lewis plays around with that a lot. And some of his imaginative theology. And he talks about, because you know, he talks about the shadow lands. This is the, what we're headed for is not something less real, and that's what we think about when we say spiritual, but more real. Some of you that have read The Great Divorce, the people from the gray town, the shadow lands, are taken up to, to heaven and they can't hardly stand it because the grass hurts their feet. Because they're not yet substantive enough. That's the part of the problem. We're not, we're not substantive enough yet. We're still frail. We're still mere shadows of what we're going to be. Someday we will come into the fullness of, of substantive being in glory in Christ. Okay, that's, that's a great mystery. Perusia, and then, and then all things are restored. I believe that. I believe Perusia. I believe apocastasis. Those are great mysteries. But so is this. So is this. I like it better when we have a cup and we have bread and, and we, we're, we're reduced to this right now. It's okay. It's, it's, it still works. There is symbol involved. You can think of bread as body and wine as blood. There's symbol involved, but it's more than just symbol. It is a participation in the divine. That's what the Apostle Paul says. The cup of blessing which we bless is our participation in the divine blood of Christ. The bread which we break is our participation in the divine body of Christ. So I invite you now to the mystery. I invite you to stand with me. Let's begin by confessing our faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, He rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, 
the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of sins, saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. I do believe in that life everlasting. I do believe in the resurrection. I do believe in the blessed hope. I do believe that we will step into the glorious liberty of the sons of God. I do believe that we'll become participants of the divine nature. I do believe that it has not yet appeared what we shall be, but when we see him, we shall be like him. And now let's confess our sins and receive the merciful forgiveness of our Father. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is merciful to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little You who have been here often and you who have not been here long, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you.